Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Let up, let up, which of course is Dutch for Achtung, Achtung. I'm Al Murray. And I'm James Holland. And you're listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the Second World War podcast severely lacking in any semblance of military discipline. This week we've broken out, haven't we, James? Yeah, we have indeed, Al. We've, uh, we were woken early with tea and bully beef and we've marched on Dorset at first light. In fact, we're in that mecca of armoured warfare, Bombington Tank Museum. Yes, yeah, I, I, it feels good, doesn't it? It feels good to be <laughs> here. I love this place. And we're in, here, we're in here early before the public, so we've got the run of the place. which is Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and we've also got David here, David Willing. Gentlemen, welcome. Now put your clothes back on. Um, don't get overexcited, <laughs> but we have plenty of tanks for you. So when you're ready to go, start asking. And, start but it's talking. May the 9th that we're recording this, James, and which of course is the day after VE Day in victory in Europe. But there wasn't, I mean, people think VE Day, there was one victory in Europe Day, but there wasn't, was there? There were several. Yeah, there's, there's three surrenders. So there's the, the 7th of May, which yep. is when General Yodel turns up to chafe, you know, Eisenhower's headquarters in yep. Reims and says, okay, we surrender. Yep. And they agree that victory in Europe Day will be the following day, the 8th yep. of May. But the Russians, the Soviet Union, don't like this. They go, well, hang on, what about us? We want our own surrender here in, in Berlin. So they go down to Karlshorst, which is this old sort of barracks room in, in the kind of southeastern part of, of Berlin. And there at a quarter past midnight on the 9th of May, mm. they sign another one. And it's amazing, actually. I don't know if you've ever been there, but the room is exactly as it was. I mean, it is exactly. And you go in there and you do have this kind of, there is this frisk and the hairs on the back of your neck yeah. start to stand up. You realise you're kind of in this place of immense history and there's also um, film footage of that uh, that event taking place that signing Tedder is there he was the deputy supreme allied commander under Eisenhower he's there to represent the western allies and Zhukov's there and all the the gang and uh, Keitel 
who is, um, you know, head of the German general staff, the OKW, is there to take the um, German surrender. And there is, you know, he comes in looking very kind of patrician and Prussian, absolutely as you'd, you'd imagine he would be. But there is a moment where he, the mask drops and he brings a, a finger to his, his face, a sort of nervous kind of twitch. And, and he's, you shit, can, he's shitting himself, right? He, he yeah. Absolutely yeah. is. You can just okay. see him thinking. Oh, crap. Oh, yes, I'm in <laughs> But the thing is, is they'd already... The Germans uh, were, weren't keen to surrender to the Russians, were they? They were keen to surrender to the Western Allies. You've got German soldiers um, heading west as, as fast as they could to get away from the Red Army. In yep. fact, surrendering en masse... Across the River Elba. En masse to um, Monty's army. And we've come to the tank, tank Museum, and uh, the first exhibit we're looking at is not a tank. I mean, there's every tank here you could possibly want. We're looking at a hat. And it is, of course... Uh, Field Marshal Montgomery's legendary Black Beret, which is, which is of course, Royal Armour Corps Black. Yep. He was an infantryman. He was Warwickshire's, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Right? So why is he wearing a Black Beret with a, with a, with a, with a Royal Armour Corps badge on it and then his own general's badge? What on earth's going on? David, can you explain the, the Monty hat? Yeah, I think it's a lovely example of how Monty, the showman, um, knows the moment. He knows the photographers around. He's the guy that's going to wants to get himself in the press, and uh, and also as a symbol as well. He wants to be I'm a lad, just like the rest of them. And it's actually a Sergeant Fraser, one of his tank crews, his Royal Tank Regiment. They wear black berets. Yeah. And they're having a cup of tea. There's even an image of it. And he hands over to Monty a black beret and says, wear this, sir. And actually, in North Africa as well, a New Zealand unit actually hand over a slouch hat. Yeah. And he's seen in some photographs with that. So it's this way that yes, Monty... Yes, it's that slouch hat picture he's got, like, he's sort of got 15 Half a dozen badges, badges yeah. yeah. So, ridiculous. Yeah. So, and that beret is actually is presented to the um, Royal Tank Regiment Museum, which we are, um, some years later by Monty. And it's part of that showmanship. You can see how the guy is using every possible means, not only for the media, but to get across to his own troops. He's yeah. got to, he's at a point there in North Africa, he's got to make a stamp, he's got to make a mark. And of course, he's a, he's a controversial figure, um, uh, even now, um, but what he delivers at El Alamein, and obviously there's all sorts of things coming in his direction, like the 8th Army have got reorganised, they've... Um, they've They've got themselves into a position where they can canalise the Germans and basically trap them in the Alamein position. It's a narrow front. The Germans are right at the end of their logistic line. But he's the first person to inflict a sort of game-changing defeat on the on the on on the Germans, isn't he? Yeah, he absolutely is. I mean, first of all, he he stops Rommel in his. I'm sorry, I said game-changing. By the way, I'm basically embarrassed. That I've used the word game-changing <laughs> to talk about we Second Alamein. We know what we mean. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but first of all, uh, the Battle of Alam Halfer at the very yeah, end. Yeah, right. You're game-changer. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not really annoyed with myself, James. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. End of the verse. Well, I think the point is, as he comes in, as you know, you've just been reading Jonathan uh, Fennell's new book. Yeah. We're gonna. I think we're gonna discuss that. In we're a gonna few have to. Yeah. Time. Yeah. But um, I've read his original one that he did on morale in the Eighth Army yeah. in North Africa. And what Jonathan Fennell comes across, um, describes very, very well, is how Monty, and to a certain extent Alexander in the back, you know, in, yeah. in, in the shadows to a certain extent, who is Commander-in-Chief of the Middle East, over Monty, what they both do is they kind of stop the rot. They go, OK, right, this is a clean slate. We've got to build up morale. Because in a conscript army, if you haven't got morale, you've got no army. Yeah. So you've got to improve that morale. You've got to make people believe there's a plan. You've got to believe that we're all in it together, that we're all singing from the same hymn sheet, that they all know what's going on. And that's what he does. And he understands that they live in a media age. It's not just now that's a media age. It was a media age back in the 1940s. And that you need to kind of project generalship you need to have a you need to be visible and project a kind of a message and that simple beret is the biggest means of projecting that image and that singleness of purpose it's amazing and it's amazing to just be looking at it yeah, here thinking that was on the great man's and, head and and uh, the famous order that he issued when he took over eighth army is and we might as well we might as well die here as, there's no point digging trenches for a retreat. Or, uh, he says we we we're going to stand and stand and fight here, and of course they weren't they weren't preparing a retreat. They weren't getting ready to go back to Alexandria. But he, he says it. He says it out loud, doesn't he? He says yep. we're going to we're going to stick around now. So, but we're not here to talk about North Africa. No, we've got Normandy. We've got Normandy online. to discuss because because he is, he burnishes his reputation. He defeats Rommel. In, in North Africa, he gets, you know, he, he, he then runs the, 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 the British component of the Sicily invasion. He then goes into Italy and he gets stuck in Italy. And then he's sent back to London 
for D-Day. Yes, and it has to be said that there is that the narrative of the Second World War, the narrative of D-Day and the Normandy campaign has not been kind to Monty. Um, you know, we've had 60 years of successive narrative histories, whether it be the big fat books by the, by the, by the big boys, or, and I'm talking Carlo Deste, of course, yeah. and Max and Anthony and so on, or documentaries, <laughs> and they all stick the knife in. They all think he's awful. Carlo Deste, American, former colonel in the US Army, um, I mean, he hasn't got a good word to say about Monty at all, and indeed the whole book revolves around Monty's plan, and I'm doing air commas for that. Right. I mean, you know, but my, my big point about this is, is yeah, okay, so Monty is Commander-in-Chief of Ground Forces for Operation Overlord, the invasion of, of, of Normandy in the first part of the battle. But, but so he is overall architect, but it's not like, you know, he's the only person who's coming up with a plan, drawing it all, doing it all himself. I mean, you know, this is, this is a combined effort by a combined staff across services, across nations, and being approved by the guys at the very top. And, you know, when he comes over in uh, Eisenhower and Beadle Smith, who is Eisenhower's yeah. chief of staff, they have a meeting in Algiers, which is, is Allied headquarters in North Africa up until the end of 1943, right in the very end of that, that year. And they all sit around and they go, you know what, the original plan that's been put forward by Morgan, brilliant though it is, is, is obviously limiting resources. Um, it hasn't got enough. The scale of it isn't big enough for what, what needs to be put in place. Uh, let's rewrite it. Monty then gets to England, comes up with a kind of a, a, rough, out, a rough plan, five beaches, use, use of airborne troops, securing the flanks, all that kind of stuff. Um, puts that forward to Beadle Smith and to Eisenhower. They go, yep, crack on, go and do a kind of more detailed plan. He then presents the plan to everybody on the 7th of April at St Paul's at School, St. Paul's School which is, is there, isn't he? They, they, for yes. some reason they invite the king. All the, all the main guys are there and no one quibbles about it at all. And that's because they've all been involved in the decision-making process. Then on the 15th of May, Eisenhower calls another meeting and uh, again at St Paul's. And at this point, Eisenhower says, right, it's really important that we're all singing from the same hymn sheet on this one. So if anyone's got any problem with any part of the plan, now is the time to mention it. Because if you don't, don't start bellyaching after this because it's too late. And no one puts their hand up. Everyone, everyone is happy with the plan. And that is because it is the best possible plan. Well, it's the could plan they've done. all made as well. And, but uh, but it, the it, constraint is shipping. Yeah. It's not, you know, there are millions of men in the UK. There are hundreds of thousands of trucks and, and tanks and guns and everything you could possibly need and, and supplies and medical supplies, etc., etc., etc. The challenge is getting them across the channel right. in quick order that you can secure a bridgehead before the Germans realise what's going on and counterattack. David, um, have we said anything stupid yet? <laughs> no, I, th I think it's really important to um, go back to that business about why Monty, for us to talk about Monty, as has been mentioned, James mentioned, this idea that um, for so many people he comes across as quite a loathsome figure. And even in the people who were serving under him, some absolutely adored him and thought he really did come in and make a change. Other ones found him a bit of a showman, thought he was a bit vulgar, didn't like this, various things about it. Um, Monty does himself no great service at all because so often he stands up in front of the press and says things or takes credit for things or says things in a manner that just wind everybody, including, of course, the Americans mainly up. Underneath it all, though, strip that back, look at what we've had beforehand. We've had some very good generals, but no one gripped it like Monty did. Yep. Monty wants that organised planned battle, and boy, are you going to need that for something like D-Day in Normandy. There's no, you know, flying by the skin of your pants doing something like, which has been described, you know, the whole of the D-Day invasion, still as one of the biggest undertakings mankind has ever done. So when you've got people looking at that in that sort of scale, you want someone who you can actually trust and rely on and have, however irritating it is to so many other people, that sense of self-belief that Monty has. But the interesting thing with him, isn't he, is he's an infantryman, but, but, but he's having to invent. Uh, because, the, because once they've come out of North Africa and they, and they, they then deal with the Germans in Italy, and, and, and each time it's different, each time it changes. The, the German response mutates, the terrain is different. They come to Normandy and he has to find a way of using tanks. The, the British Army, of course, wasn't particularly interested in 10 years previously. He has to find a way of using 
armour and infantry together, combined with air power, and and get an enormous army. I mean, how big is how big is Second Army at this point? How many men are in it? I mean, it's it, and it's, well, it's a million strong, but exactly. it's a bit, so, but so he's just got, under. So he's got to 000. find a way of getting them to, them to all work together and talk talk to each other <clears> and adapt to obviously a German reaction and the chain and the terrain and how the battle's going to because the Germans, you know, the, of course, you know, it's this classic thing: no plan survives contact with the enemy. The D-Day plan, in general, survives contact with the enemy doesn't it i mean they don't yes they don't take con day one which is, of course is where all the, which is the magnet for the criticism of the yep. plan and of montgomery yes they don't but 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 the but it's the matador's cape as he called it uh, uh, I mean, jumping ahead of yourself. Let's. I'll tell you what we should do first of all. Look, we're surrounded by all these fantastic yeah. tanks. Yes, we're talking about hats. Let's look. Okay, at what one of the issues that Monty takes over, which is the development of specialised armour. What's the armour he's got there that he can use? What's the pros and cons of that? Let's just go and have a look at some of those. All right. And also where that amazing brilliant bit of British engineering comes from um, that leads to, undoubtedly, Eisenhower says it, success on the D-Day beaches, and that's that specialised armour of the 79th Armoured Division. Well, yeah, we'll hold that thought, David, because um, there's a couple of things I just want to make about points I want to make about Monty. So the first thing is, is where the trouble for him lies is on the phase lines. So what happens is, on the 7th of April, he comes up with this big map which has projected phase lines. These are assumptions about where the Allies might be after kind of D plus X. Mm. And the key one is D plus 17, they're 50 miles inland. Mm. And Bradley, who is commander of US First Army and is going to take command of US 12th Army Group, once Patton's 3rd Army comes in at a certain point in the Normandy campaign, says to him, goes, well, you know, aren't we kind of sort of you know, setting ourselves up for a fall if we start putting in phase lines and saying this. And Monty goes, mm, yeah, maybe you're right. But then actually goes ahead and puts them up anyway. And Monty's thinking behind this is that there is a lot of people in that room who are absolutely crapping themselves. Because even if you've got all these millions of men and you've got all these resources and you've got your huge um, air power and naval power and all the rest of it, D-Day and the whole proposition is fraught with unimaginable risk. And there are a lot of people who are sitting there thinking, we've got the weight of the Western world on our shoulders and this could all go pear-shaped. And what Monty does and does absolutely brilliantly is gives self-assurance, gives self-belief. And what the phase lines do is help project that sense of vision. And it is vision that is incredibly important when you're well, trying and, to sell and, a concept. And D plus 90 is Paris, isn't it? And D plus 90 is Paris. And they do it. They do it in 77 days. Yeah. So those phase lines were wrong. Yes, I mean, the, by I, mean two the, weeks. I mean, the crucial thing, of course, at the beginning of the invasion is space, isn't it? Yeah. Is that is that the reason they're looking? They need a big beachhead. Is you're bringing men and kit in. You need airfields because the idea is that uh, yep. Second Tactical Air Force is going to be flying typhoons or whatever f from Normandy, so that they can be in the air in five minutes and deal with deal with whatever, rather than have to fly across the channel. And so the the constraints at the start of the invasion, which is often where, where the plan comes in for criticism that's going, all going too slowly, is they need that space. They, they're, because they're shipping, you know, the mulberries being installed, they're yep. shipping ammunition in, they're shipping fuel in, they're shipping vehicles, men. I mean, you know, D-Day isn't... I mean, I, I always think the problem with when people talk about the Normandy battles, they get hung up on D-Day. D plus one is is just as important as D plus three, the men arriving on D plus five. You know, the, the, the kit, the stuff coming in. And, and then, of course, you get the, the other thing that, that's not in Montgomery's plan and can't be is the storm that then disrupts everything. Um, well, and the bad weather before that also says Yeah, bad weather before but and my, then the bad weather after. But my point yeah, about yeah. the phase lines also is, is those are assumptions. They're just assumptions on previous knowledge of the Germans. And if you think about it, where, where, where do you draw those assumptions from? Well, you draw them from Tunisia, where the Axis forces um, retreated in stages. You do it in yeah. Sicily, where they did exactly the same. And you're doing it in Italy, where they also retreated in stages. So what, what tends to happen is they put up a bit of a fight and then they fall back to the next line, yeah. leaving lots of sort of booby traps and IEDs and stuff. Um, and, and then hold another line and you start all over again. So it's not... You know, on that understanding, that is what makes military sense. When Rommel has a meeting with Hitler at Marjeval on the 17th of June, he says, it's crazy staying close to the front because we're within range of offshore naval guns where we're getting absolutely pummeled. We should start retreating in stages. And Hitler says no. But military logic suggests that the Germans should have retreated in stages. And they don't. But that's not Monty's fault. You know, what he's yeah. doing on the 7th of April and again on the 15th of May at those two big 
Chiefs meetings, is saying, this is what I think we can realistically achieve. Come on, boys. Mm. The water's warm. We're going to be fine. Now, and he's giving everyone a little bit of backbone, and that's great. Now, here we, so this beret is in the, is in the desert bit, because this is where Monty enters the story. And next to us is a Grand Medium M3. Now, I think, in a way, the, the, that tank and Monty's beret here in the desert, because it's got kind of the same suspension as a Sherman tank, speaks of in 42-43 the technologies on its way on its way to perfection that then arrive uh, perfection's a, a, a heavy word to have used but, but, but by 1944 the, the, it's all come through and it's all the, the, they're getting the fine tuning right would you, would you say that's about right David? Well you're, if you're looking at allied tank design yeah. obviously from the point of view of what we are looking at with an M3 Grant tank is this is an example of that just amazing industrial miracle that the Americans go through um, up to just before 1940 in their entire history. America had made about 300 tanks. Right. By 1945, it's over 80,000. <laughs> and, and when you just think, and so what the Americans are doing, and it's so important that, that the British use of American tanks, so we really must talk about American tanks. What the Americans do in the 20s and 30s, they have something called a cadre army. It's a tiny force. It does some experimentation. Um, the American tank force is done away with after the First World War. It's nearly done away with in France as well. Um, but they have enough people that are going out doing experiments and they're doing things like testing suspension units. Yeah. They're looking at engines. And the American war plan is quite simply is when the war comes, we will throw money at that problem then. And it works for them. Yeah. And what they do is very sensibly, they get American car motor or automotive industry designers involved. They get um, industrial uh, conglomerates come forward. They are talking to the American military and they say, look, instead of going to things like locomotive companies to build these tanks, as traditionally happens in yeah. Europe, let's go to the car manufacturers. And so literally from greenfield sites, huge new factories are built very, very quickly. They are designing, they put together this tank, the M3, which they call an interim model. Yeah. Um, the engines, the suspension, the track, a lot about this. They haven't quite got the turret right for what they really want to build, which is the M4 tank that we all know because the British name it, the Sherman. We name all these American tanks that come over that uh, through Lend-Lease were buying tanks off them. Don't forget before America's in the war. So we are actually naming these after American Civil War generals. Hence, Jeb Stewart, we have a Stewart light tank, Sherman, the Grant. Um, and these tanks for British tank crewmen are fantastic. Yeah. Um, they are reliable. Um, they have, when they first arrive in North Africa, a 75mm gun. Um, that's, that's great. That, that, you know, dual purpose. It fires high explosive and armor piercing. Um, our own tank design has taken a step back after 1940 because the whole emphasis in Britain then... Uh, after Dunkirk is we need to concentrate on aeroplanes to defend ourselves, yeah. fighters and then bombers to get back at the bastards. Yes. So, so that idea of our own tank development, again, we are putting things, we've already designed a wonderful anti-tank gun, a six-pounder, but we're not going to put, put it into production yet because if we stop making two-pounders, woohoo, what if the Germans come across the channel meanwhile? Yeah. So we need to keep pumping out our tanks fall behind. The Americans are the ones that, in many ways, in that middle war period, come to our rescue. And we're able to use those. And that period of the build-up to D-Day, that we see huge numbers of American tanks. And, and there are service. Shermans at El Alamein, aren't there? Yeah, 300. So they're fresh to the battlefield. And, of course, the, 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 the other tank that, 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 then, that, that then appears at the other end of North Africa um, that everyone knows is the Tiger. And, um, uh, I mean, we're not going to get into Tiger tanks. God help us. We I can mean, let you vent your Twitter. spleen on, on oh, Tigers oh, in a moment. Oh, we can have a look at a Tiger. But the interesting thing, though, at the beginning of 1942, both the British and the Germans are both looking at their arm and going, hang on a minute, what we've got is not quite up to the business. And they drop a list of priorities. And for the Germans, it is a massive gun and lots of armour. And for the British, it is a half-decent gun, Ease of maintenance and reliability are, are top of the list. And that comes and above. loads of them. And loads of them. And, and what I love about the, I mean, the, the, the chassis, the basic hull of the Grant is exactly the same as the Sherman. And look at this. You know, you've got the suspension bogies on the outside. If you need to change it. Just take it take off. Take it off, put another one on. There are lots of interchangeable stuff. So you see this here. <laughs> 
you can have this 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 features on literally every bit of of American kit, lots of interchangeable stuff that's not just interchangeable with tanks, but also with trucks and all sorts of things. And that's just really pragmatic. There's this immense kind of common sense that goes into the US war production. Rommel actually in North Africa, where he sees some of the first American kit that's been captured, he stands there and looks at this stuff and he's got other German soldiers around him and he points at things like the headlights and he said these guys have got it right it's the same headlight on this vehicle on that vehicle on the half track this idea of mass production is so essential for the americans and the seduction we have as we'll no doubt see you've mentioned tiger tanks of looking at the german stuff and thinking of its technological advantages of all these wonderful things it's actually very bespoke time and time again and in warfare that means time bespoke is bad energy goes into this you know as well the americans they have come up with that plan let's stick to it let's do a 30-ton tank so we can cross the atlantic with it let's be able to pass it all around the world all those things the americans seem to get right what's the provenance of this vehicle where, where's the, where did this fight and uh, or did it fight is it a some of the vehicles here we've got in this area you're looking at this grant tank we don't know this tank's particular history but it's actually opposite a panzer three we know when that was shipped to, to uh, out to libya um the unit it was being used in and it was captured and brought back to Britain as part of a lot of German vehicles early on in the war, where when they were captured, we wanted to know all we possibly can about them. And military intelligence used to do um, little, they look at the numbers on some of the metal work as well as the serial numbers on there. British military intelligence was able to establish pretty accurately how yeah, many tanks the Germans were building. And where it was made and everything. That they, the Germans are quite clever on that. They Three-letter code on everything, um, and basically those codes, after a while, if you start being able to identify them, you can then work out who the manufacturer is and what factory, therefore, to bomb. And Klaus, um, what he has for his lunch, did they get that good at it? <laughs> they're, not, they're not quite that good, but it, it is surprising in some areas, and that's not to do with Ultra. That's just looking at the physical evidence of being able to say, hang on a second, if we do the serial numbers here, we can roughly work out they must have built X hundred of these tanks. Amazing. Right, well, it's time for us to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be answering your tank-related questions. Back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Well, welcome back to the Tank Museum. We're in Bovington in deepest, loveliest Dorset. It's particularly lovely around here. Um, the great thing about driving here is you, um, the road signs say tanks. Um, there's that, there's that, when, you, when you leave one of the villages, there's you know, the, the, the national speed limit sign and it says tanks. And I, I, um, uh, yeah, I love it. Before we crack on exploring this wonderful place and answering your questions, a few quick observations and corrections from you, dear listener. Yes, corrections. We're prepared to accept them. I am fallible. Remember, you can contact us on Twitter using the hashtag WeHaveWays. And every single tweet is read by one of our team. Quite often, me, frankly. Um, here we go with a few bits of feedback. Now, TC writes, great show. Patton's pistol handles were ivory, though. I, I think I said they were pearl. Well, they're pearl colour. Exactly. Yeah, so it's an understandable mistake. And Mark Fisher also writes into quote pattern as saying, son, I'll do his voice. Son, only a pimp in Louisiana whorehouse carries pearl-handed revolvers. These are ivory. I don't know if he sounded like that, but he had <laughs> He did eye. sound squeaky. He did have a squeaky voice. We also discussed Madagascar a few episodes ago, um, ironclad, and 10-inch wheels has got in touch to say, nice to hear Al and James talking about little-known Operation Ironclad and We Have Ways. My uncle Ernest kept a Vichy French bullet that was stopped by a corned beef tin in his haversack while in action on Madagascar in 1942. He only discovered it later when eating the beef. How about that? (laughs) And we've got this belter from Nigel Thurgar, again to our hashtag We Have Ways. He says, I was in Berlin last week and there was a poster at a U-Bahn station advertising a language school. The slogan said, we have ways of making you talk. (laughs) Who says the Germans don't have a good sense of humour? Well, they certainly do. I know they do. I know they do. Of course they do. Yeah, I mean, uh, and if people worried about Brexit and the Germans are laughing at us, could be happening. And way back <laughs> in our first episode, it was, I think, that we discussed Vickers, the military-industrial complex of the 20s, 30s and 40s. Carl Douglas has got in touch to say, I used to love passing the Vickers factory in Newcastle. They had a Challenger tank parked outside until the late 90s. So cool. That tank, actually, is just down the road now. It's at a building called the Discovery Centre, which is the big museum in Newcastle. So that's the one that was outside the Vickers oh, Works. Brilliant. I knew, I knew you'd know that, David. <laughs> uh, and one last one from a less than delighted podcast listener, I'm afraid, Paul Johns. Uh, we talked a few weeks ago about the New Zealand General Freiburg, he of Crete and Monte Cassino, who we were, it has to be said, a little bit less than complimentary about. And Paul says, Dear Alan Jones, we have ways. Now that I have regained my composure from episode one, I have a question regarding Lieutenant General Bernard Cyril Freiburg, VC, GCMG, KCB, KB, DSO, and three bars. The question is, is, how very dare you? Love from New Zealand. Oh, creep, yeah, mate. Creep. One yeah, word. Yeah. Creep. And, and my, my point is, no one was doubting his bravery. I was just no. doubting his creep. ability to command an entire corps. Creep, for anyway. heaven's sake. Uh, right. <laughs> well, Monte Cassino. Mont- well, yeah, sake. of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, okay, um, so we're, we're still at the Tank Museum. It's not like we go anywhere else, is it, James? Um, <laughs> um, and uh, we're in a very special room uh 
to answer this question from Tom Banner. The Tiger Tank, was it overrated? And we're in the Tiger Hall in front of Tiger One, uh, Tiger 131, which is the one captured in Tunisia by the British. Isn't that right, David? Yep, what's the, what's looking, the story here? So this is one of these uh, items that Hitler sends out to Tunisia. They're losing the campaign. He wakes up to it, sends out two battalions of what they call Schwerpanzerabteilen, heavy tank battalions, sent out. This one was fighting with a unit called the 504th and it is captured by the British in Tunisia. It's the first working Tiger tank we've captured in the West. So Churchill sees it, the King sees it in Tunis, it's brought back to the UK and it's evaluated. It's actually put on Horse Guards Parade at one point. God knows what that did to the morale. But <laughs> the, the issue about it, it's, we've got at last one of these, these latest super heavy German tanks and what are we gonna do about it? That, that was the analysis that they were looking at. And out of interest, I've met a number of guys who this tank was actually put at uh, the Schoolless Tank Technology, um, which is up at Chobham, or it was in the war years. And some British tank crews were invited along to take a look at it. And we've met some veterans uh, who, Reg Spittles, one of them, who remembers being taken on this tank, sitting on the barrels. The guy looked after the shed where all these captured equipment came in and says, Oi, get off my tank, you might break it. Um, but he, he, he remembers being shown that. I also have seen other veterans that we've spoken to that knew nothing about Tiger tanks before they went to Normandy. Um, and Ken Maxey, who was a Royal Tank Regiment officer, gave a great story. I was standing in front of it with him and he said, I said, you know, did, what did you think of it when you were shown it? And he looked around, looking left and right, took me by the arm to one side and he said, what do you think I thought of it, young man? I nearly shat my fucking pants. He went, <laughs> Well, so, so, that, so, so that the, brings so the us question to the question is, was the Tiger tank overrated? Discuss. Well, it's a flipping good tank. I mean, you know, it's pretty scary. You come up against that, as your chap said. I mean, you know, massive gun, lots of armour. It's huge. It's got enormous wide tracks. It's a pretty fearsome beast. The problem with it is that it's just incredibly mechanically complex. The Germans don't have any fuel, and this used lots of it. It's not manoeuvrable. It's mechanically unreliable. It's, it's very complicated to drive and, and, and repair, particularly if you're an 18-year-old recruit, um, and quite a lot goes wrong. But what it's for, isn't it, is because it, it's got the 88mm gun on it, which is the adaptation of the, the uh, flat cannon. Yep. Famous the great high velocity. Yeah, famous 88, which they, which they would use as an anti-tank weapon as well. What this is for is picking off distant Russian tanks on the steps, isn't it? As the, as, the, as the Russians come at you in their large numbers, from a mile away, a mile and a half away, you can pick them off with this 88, and that's what it's for. So when you get to Normandy, where it's country lanes and it's high hedgerows and it's countryside where everyone's hugging mugger on top of each other, a gun that's good for like a mile and a half is probably not the weapon you need. Am I, am I right? In, am I right to go there? Am I right? It, it's it, as a tank. Going back to yes, it, it was actually originally designed as a breakthrough vehicle. So when the Germans really? were going to be advancing, it was going to be the one that leads the attack, but not very and, quickly. Well, but again, you see, that's where we will get some myths as well. That tank is faster than a Sherman, right? A Tiger's faster than a Sherman. So we do have to be careful about when we're saying this. So not by much. I mean, a Sherman can do twenty-five miles an hour. No problem. Tiger can beat a Sherman on a straight race. It's it's just not peculiar. It can't. It yeah, can do no, 25. We can, we can. We can, we can beat a tiger. <laughs> it, this is where, where again, these, you need to these change peculiar, your, uh, okay, your well, data. Well, right, okay. <laughs> Bear with me here on this one. But the, the issue about the tiger is, is it is a stunningly well protected, 10 centimetres yes. of front of armour, stunningly effective gun, but it's built in such small numbers. And again, we only have to think 1,300 odd tigers. Against you know well over fifty thousand Shermans, you, you know similar numbers of T thirty fours, etc. So the issue is, if you're playing top trumps, a Tiger versus Sherman, even with a seventeen pounder, you know actually a Corsa Tiger looks looks at better odds. Tank warfare, certainly Normandy as well, is not top trumps. Yeah. Now the the business about the train is one thing, but actually Borgabus Ridge, there are opener areas. Yeah. So so yeah. on some of these areas, uh, they can actually use that. There is this other issue, which is a psychological impact mm. of if you've met a tiger, boy, do you remember it. So anything with a boxy turret in a hedge, Mark allied four. tank. Because I mean, the, the Mark IV Panzer, you could, I mean, the tiger in a way is sort of an inflated 
Mark IV, isn't it? It's yeah, like lots of people get it like wrong. It's like they got the foot pump. I got it wrong on Twitter the other day. Well, you did, you? The God, way no, that the was embarrassing, wasn't it, James? Yeah, Honestly. And think of also <laughs> those, those, those veterans as well who were serving. They were lucky if they perhaps got one little demonstration film or a couple of, of posters, you know. So this idea when somebody, you know, corrects a veteran saying, oh, you were wrong about this and everything. Well, number one, shut up and show some respect. And number two, <laughs> I would also then go back to that. Remember, these were young lads. We've had decades of studying all this stuff. Yes. These guys didn't. So the fact that they've mistaken what they saw in a hedgerow, you know, that sort of thing, uh, is, is not necessary. You know, we don't blame them for that. No. But the point about it is, it obviously does not work for the Germans. They are stunningly successful as a wonderful bit of kit that way, but there's not enough of them to make an impact on the battlefield. Yeah. And they're too complicated. You know, you have to remember that the, you know, the, the gearbox is designed by Ferdinand Porsche. It's a, you know, it's a six-speed semi-hydraulic pre-selector gearbox, and it's unbelievably complicated. And you put a 19-year-old recruit into it who's never really driven before. It's a bit like putting someone who's just passed his driving test into a Lamborghini Contash. You know, it's, so it's like, not like the gearbox on the T34, which you need a hammer. No. No, but it it's not like the, or the one on the Sherman where it's kind of, you know, four forward and one back, you yeah. know, and it's all manual. It's, it's just, it's not, it's not designed for practical use on the battlefield. And the, actually the width of the tracks here are so wide. And, you know, most, most of the German war material gets moved from A to B by, by railway. It doesn't fit on the loading gauge of the Continental Railway, but, so you have to change right, the okay, track to do it. So it's a bit okay, of a faff as well. We, 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 we did just touch on hindsight. You, 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 our hindsight here is telling us, well, the Allies got the, made the right decision by going mass production. <laughs> Those are German idiots. They didn't go mass production, you know, make loads of Mark III's or loads of Mark IV's. Why are the Germans doing this? What's, what's culturally driving them to make this decision? So it's Hitler. Hitler is... <laughs> How uh, big is you, mine? You, you, exactly, you cannot get away from the fact if, if Hitler shows an interest. And the weird thing about Hitler, of course, is he makes some decisions early in the war that flabbergast because of their success mm. even his own military high commander going good grief we didn't quite think that was going to happen that way he therefore thinks you know he claims um almost you know like he, he's, he's got prophetic vision about yes. some of these things and he is the one arguing very early on saying things like oh, no we don't want the standard 37 millimeter gun on a panzer three we want a five centimeter gun our latest you know and he's angry when it takes over a year for that to happen so he is pushing always this slightly larger for the next fighting season. I want our tanks to have whatever the latest gun is ahead of the game of whatever the enemy is going to come at us. And to the point where the procurement, A, can't keep up, B, delivers things that aren't really suitable for the way the battle's being fought. Exactly. And, and see that the, the, the technology can't keep up because, because this is sort of, this is a, like a tank from the 50s. Yeah, but actually, actually the, the Panther is, is, is supposed to be coming yeah. out ahead of the Tiger and yeah. doesn't. And that's because, you know, and it's absolutely hustled into, into action and it was hustled into, into Kursk and they end up using many more Stugs and Panzer Mark IVs yeah. than they do Panthers or Tigers at Kursk because they're just not ready and the Panthers are having all sorts of mechanical glitches and stuff. It's, it's amazing. And also, they're just spreading the load too wide. There's too many people making them. It's too complicated. It's, it's too, no, too what, no one is going to argue against a Führer order. That's the other thing. You're yeah. in a dictatorship. Yeah. However, so nothing you can do about it. No, yeah. uh, the, the Tiger is a program that is started by Adolf Hitler himself. And this idea that we some to think like, come on, suddenly someone should have been saying, why don't you just more, build more Sturmgeschützes, Gov? Um, no one says that. To or if they do, they've got to be very brave trying to say it. We've got to move on to another question. All right. So this is a good one. I've never heard of this before. The Russians in World War II strapped bombs to the backs of dogs and then the dogs would run under the tanks and be detonated. So they were kind of canine suicide bombers. Apparently, when tested in action, the dogs, having been trained using old Soviet tanks, ran under the tanks of their own side rather than the panzers. I've never heard of that. You see, I've heard Richard that. Tanner it, I've Richard heard that, Tanner. I've heard that, and I've heard it sort of poo-pooed. Is it, is... Yeah, there are images. I think it's like a lot of these things. Um, yes, they did try it. There's no two ways about it. There's a photograph of a dog with one of these detonation packs on its back um, with a T-34 in the background. The fact that this is so, you only have to think about it very carefully, it's so potentially going to go wrong <laughs> that, that after the first couple of experiments, you know, you can see how this is not going. So I think it's another one of those ones where, yes, it almost certainly was experimented with, um, doesn't lead to That's anything. That's the Soviet Union all over, though, isn't it? 
We try something daft. It has not worked. <laughs> well, I, I, I think I think we did some quite clever ideas as well. Yeah, but, yeah, um, along the way. Yeah, now, so Fionn Duffield asks: British tanks. So we've just been talking about German tanks, German procurement. Were they really that bad? No. David, yes, no. I, 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 again, always a complex problem. It's never as simplistic as saying our tanks were rubbish, the Germans were better than ours. No. Um, There's a whole level of nuance. There it? You is. To, you uh, you know, early it. in the war, just remember, 1940, when we leave all our tanks behind us over at France, Dunkirk, we carry on making some of the models. We've got a better gun to go on our tanks. We carry on making the two-pounder because we need a gun tomorrow to meet the German panzers rather than the promise of a better one. It means our tank design falls behind. 1940, the emphasis in Britain... Fighters to defend ourselves, bombers, bombers to get to strike back. Absolutely, and and from that side. But when we get going again, forty-four onwards, you know, we've got tanks like the Cromwell, which is fast, perfect for exploitation. We get the Comet, and at the end of the war, of course, just misses. So seeing the end of the fighting, we come up with the Centurion, which is just a world beater for at least a couple of decades to come. Yeah. So it's a bit more nuanced. So, link to this, um, Steve Marley <laughs> says, is there one tank that was outstanding overall in World War II? The T-34, Cromwell, Sherman, Farfly, Panther, Tiger, all has strengths and weaknesses, I know. Well, you're absolutely right. And actually, you mentioned Top Trumps earlier on, and actually, Top Trumps is, is quite an interesting approach to looking at tanks. So, if you were thinking of your Top Trump, Trump categories, what would they be? Well, I mean, gun. Fear Factor, wouldn't fear, you? Well, Fear Factor, so the Tiger's 10 out of 10 on the Fear Factor. It's ten. Yeah, well, out, it's, then what's the Tiger Two? Well, Tiger Two. That's it's eleven. Del, ten out of ten. I can't tell the difference. I'm in a foxhole with a pee at shitting myself. Um, uh, um, uh, but you want you'd say you'd have you'd have uh, numbers, wouldn't you? Yeah. So that'd be a factor. That'd be on reliability. Your top drum. Reliability. Ease of maintenance. Um, well, also armor. Because uh, the, the, the I mean, we come back to the gun is an interesting thing because after all, the Tiger's got a big gun, and there's a size is important aspect to the Tiger design. In fact, all the tanks in this Tiger Hall. The, what you actually need on a tank is not just a tank-busting weapon, you need an infantry support weapon, which is, of course, the thing that the British, the British run into this problem with the six-pounder because it needs to be able to fire a higher explosive round as well as an anti-tank round, doesn't it? So the, the, you're, looking at, you're looking at tank... If you look at the big guns, they're not necessarily good at the thing that they also have to do, do they? I mean, just because you can... You, you, we, and this, this is again, this is why this becomes this impossible question to answer because the minute you start lifting the lid off, you've got this host of issues. And another one is, have you got, you can have the best, most sophisticated tank on the battlefield. Look at this whopping great yeah. Tiger II behind us here. Huge, great big thing. But if you haven't got a trained crewman, it's not going anywhere. Or if, if you, you haven't got, support got the, vehicles. Exactly, you it. haven't got the logistics, petrol, it won't go anywhere. So some of these things, when you're weighing things up, yeah. so many other factors come into play. Absolutely. And if you think about, you know, you think about, about allied armour, you know, behind them are tank wreckers and tank transporters and mobile workshops and all the yeah. rest of it. The Germans have those, but they don't have them anything like the number. Half of them, particularly when they're getting to the Normandy battlefield, most of them have been shot up or half of them have been shot up before they even got near them and they didn't have enough in the first place. So it's that kind of big, that maintenance in the field and you know the moment you get to that your your top trunk marking on a tiger or a king tiger is going or tiger two well, I mean, how I big, say, how is going going way down how big it? is the tractor to tow one of these away when it breaks yeah, down no, these three famo eight ton tractors you've got a berg panther that doesn't come into the water later so you've got that terrible problem that you can have this absolutely top end hugely expensive bit of kit one widget goes wrong in it yeah. how do we get it off the back and you have to transport it by rail don't you because it's yeah. so big and all that sort of thing uh, with a sherman you can, if you've got the right kit, ne you know, nearby, which they invariably did. You can change a you can change a multi bank in two hours if you have to. I have to move on Can't to our next question. I mean, uh, the, the, this. I mean, the Tiger Tank, because it's so. I mean, this is the the thing I love about this museum is these vehicles are emblematic of the cultures that produced them as much as much as anything else. As much as it's yeah. like a, a big big sort of exciting, got a big barrel gun on As it. As are uniforms and yeah, 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 cases exactly. and everything. They're all cultural manifestations, right. Wasn't our desire, John Wimbush asks, wasn't our desire to break out into the good tank country south of Caen rather wrong-headed in that however unpleasant and mentally training it was fighting in such close country as the Bocage, open ground really suited the heavy German tanks and packs more than us. Packs being anti-tank guns. 
Uh, well, not, not really, because we were absolutely bristling with anti-tank guns. If there was yes. anyone who had lots and lots of anti-tank guns, it was, it was the Allies. I mean, you know, an infantry division was supported by 110 mm. anti-tank guns. That's before you've even got into field guns. Then you've got, because there wasn't much Luftwaffe, you've got an awful lot of anti-aircraft guns which were then used in Normandy by the Allies as anti-tank guns. Um, and on top of that, you've got... Um, um, a whole host of, you know, you've got um, aerial attack assaults as well. well so and also, when, in terms of firepower on the enemy... When the Allies do actually get into open tank country, they get to Belgium in, in 10 days or Yes. So that business about Goodwood as well is, remember, this is also whatever Mont is saying to his Goodwood, men that by the morning. Way, what, what, what 18th of July. July. Generally considered a black mark. Yeah. So, against but the British what he's Army, still but trying actually. to do, Monty's overall plan, is keep that German armour against the British armour, let the Americans build up, ready for Cobra and the breakout. Yeah. So all those attacks are stopping the Germans having the chance to actually reform their heavy armour and put it against the Americans. And that is, is again, it's almost like a higher level but that, but of that's thought also, behind. That's, that's attuned to strategic thinking and in, uh, military industrial thinking, which is let the machine take the strain, like the metal take the strain, this not is, the man. And, and yeah. because we're short of men, so what well, we we're do... We're not short of men. We've just chosen to put our manpower yes. in factories yeah. and not put them in the front yeah. line. And this is, this is part of the Allied way of war. And, and we've been criticised. The Allies have been criticised for not having the tactical chutzpah of the Germans. But the point is, we're fighting a big war. We're fighting long-tail, operational heavy war. And I would argue, going back to Monty, that Monty is the ideal commander for that because he gets it he gets how to harness well, air and naval power with land and it power. ties into what we were talking about earlier he's also got a conscript army that he's got to motivate and if you're indeed if you're if you're squandering their lives in uh, their, their morale will collapse and even though you've got this material preponderance, you'll lose. Yeah, but let me just say something about Goodwood, because on Goodwood, there's this big black day for the British forces in Normandy, 18th of July, 1944. And, you know, if you read any book about it, it sort of goes, you know, the British lost 400 tanks in one day. I mean, can you believe anything so, so hopeless and useless? It just tells you everything you know about how awful the British army was in 1944. Well, actually, it was 493 that suffered battle damage in the day. But what everyone fails to tell you is within 24 hours, 225 of them were back in action and a further 62 within 48 hours, and only 120 or something were actually permanently knocked out, which when you've got 300,500 tanks in theatre isn't that big a deal. Mm. Reg Spittles, who we were talking about the, earlier on, who's donated his absolutely fantastic um, memoirs and anecdotes to the museum here at Bovington, and David, you put them my way, and I'm eternally grateful to you for doing so. He's very interesting because he's in the 2nd Battalion of the um, Northamptonshire Yeomanry and at Goodwood they lose 37 of their 52 tanks. Within 10 days they're back up to 52 for Operation Bluecoat. Incredible. So That's why we're winning. To, exactly. And back to the German bit, the Germans can't replace their losses in the way we can. So no. it means more to them, even if they lose fewer tanks, it means more to them on the battlefield. Because it's about, because the Normandy battle descends into attrition after Villers-Bocage and You're the back. Allies are equipped to a trip the Germans better than the Germans are to trip the Allies. Okay, well, well, goodness me, what fun we've had, James. <laughs> Please do get in touch with us. We genuinely love all the comments and questions, especially when I make terrible mistakes. Your photographs and even the occasional correction. I've said corrections twice, you see. You're going to have to correct me on that, aren't you, ladies and gentlemen? Remember to use our Twitter hashtag, WeHaveWays. And we've been broadly talking about Normandy in this episode, but the next one we're going to be talking specifically about D-Day. There's so much to talk about um, and almost as much fun as tanks. Um, anyway, bye for now. Yes, David, thanks for the memory. Um, or Auf Wiedersehen, as we might say. Thanks very much, everyone, for listening. And can I just say, while I've got you all, um, that my new book on Normandy, Normandy 44, is out on the 16th of May. And I've read a proof copy, and there are only three typos in it. <laughs> and now there's none. <laughs> now there's none. Now it's perfect. <laughs>